Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. The main course, it's not really viewed like the main attraction. The main attraction is Zakuski, and you spend most of your time socializing there and drinking. And the philosophy a lot of the time is, you know, by main course, everyone's drunk anyway. (laughs) You know, they're full. They're so full. Today, I'm chatting with Bonnie Morales. She's chef owner of Kochka in Portland, Oregon, also author of the book Kochka, A Return to Russian Cooking. The daughter of Belarus immigrants, she's on a mission to teach America about real Russian cooking, a far cry from blini and borscht. Before my interview with Bonnie, I speak with Hannah Goldfield, who wrote a piece for the New York Times-style magazine called The Sweet Rewards of Bitter Food. Goldfield is a food critic for The New Yorker. Hannah, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good. You recently wrote a piece in the New York Times magazine-style section about bitter as a flavor. It's interesting because I've also on the bitter bandwagon (laughs) at Milk Street. But you said in China there is a colloquialism that translates literally to eat bitter, a metaphor for the ability to endure hardship. So bitterness has been associated with food for some time, but not necessarily in a positive way. Passover Seder, for example. So let's just talk about that as a starting point. Sure, yeah. I, I, I think that the Passover Seder is a great example because you are meant to eat bitter herbs as literally a reminder of the suffering of your ancestors. It's not supposed to be a pleasant sensation. It's supposed to put you in a mindset of pain and and suffering. And so in general, I think we think of, of bitter as a taste, as one of the five tastes as being something to avoid or, or something that, that reminds us of, of experiences that we want to avoid. So how do you go from bitterness as being a reminder of the harshness of life, um, as sort of you know, part of the human experience, to bitterness being a positive thing in terms of taste and flavor? You mentioned some examples. Uh, you talk – I mean matcha tea, of course, is bitter. Fernette Branca, which is a liqueur, is very bitter as well, which I happen to like. So how do you go from pain to pleasure in terms of talking about bitterness? That's a great question. Um, there are two things that come to mind, and each is represented actually by the two chefs that I spoke to for the essay. And one of them was Danny Bowian, who's the chef behind the Mission Chinese restaurants. Um, and he loves bitter foods, especially bitter melon. Um, and for him, eating bitter foods is, is kind of like a thrilling challenge. He described it as like sort of a slap in the face and um, almost abrasive in a, in a fun way, like it's a, a sort of exciting experience. Um, and so that I think is probably part of it for a lot of people. Um, and then the other aspect is something that um, the chef, the, the Mexican chef Enrique Olvera talked about, which is really just balance um, and, and, and complexity and the idea that 
you should have a real range of sensations when you're eating. Um, you know, we are always drawn to a range of sensations in terms of, of texture, I think, and, um, and flavor as well. You don't want something to be just sweet. You want it to be maybe sweet and salty or sweet and sour. And why not also sweet and bitter? It's, it, when something's bitter, it enhances the sweetness um, in a different way. I think than when something is sweet and sour, or sweet and salty. It's just about having a real range of of experience. You quote Danny Boeing. He says, "I like that it punches you in the face." Talking about bitterness, he calls them abrasive flavors. And the thing he said that was really interesting in your article, quote unquote, break up the experience of eating. I think that's really key because. I think in European, Northern European cooking, it's a melting pot, right? Everything is cooked for a long time. Uh, beef stew has one flavor, umami, right? And they're not, they're no starkly contrasting flavors and textures. In the rest of the world, breaking up the experience is kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, you, you go from something that just shouts out bitter and then something with a hint of sweet. You also interviewed Enrique Olvera, as you mentioned, Cosme Restaurant in New York. And he had this great quote, or, or comment you made, his mole teases at your tongue by promising but never quite delivering the relief of sugar. I mean, it sort of implies, it's like writing a good story, right? I mean, there's a drama that's not quite resolved. Yeah, it makes total sense. It's not just about pleasure necessarily. It's about really going through something in a meal, which I think is a really interesting idea. And it's, again, it's about the idea of balance and about contrast, the idea that you're on kind of an arc um, and, and, and that you're just having the widest range of experiences that a person can have while eating, which I think is, a, is, a, is an especially fascinating idea. So is it because in the last 10 years or so, the number of restaurants in almost any town that offer everything from, you know, Nepalese cuisine to South America, et cetera, you can get almost anything now and you can get almost anything that's prepared pretty well. Do you think the American palate's about to go through some great watershed moment now because of the experience in restaurants? That's really where we get it from. Is that going to translate to the rest of America? Or you think the fast food industry is going to stay just fine and people go home and cook meatloaf, but when they go to eat out, they just have a different experience or, or not? That's a really interesting question. I, I do think it is changing more broadly. You know, in, in New York City, where I live specialty ingredients or whatever you want to call them have have pretty much always been um, readily available, at least if you know where to look. But I think, you know, in the past few years, even when going to supermarkets in um, smaller cities or rural areas or just places where you wouldn't expect to find those things, you're much more likely to find those things, whether it be vegetables of the moment. Like, you know, I think a great example is kale. Like, Kale is everywhere now. And, you know, people love sriracha now. So, yeah, I, I, I do think that the palate is changing and shifting. It's, I think it's a slow process. So I don't know if there'll be quite a watershed moment, but I do think that um, the American palate is becoming more globalized in general, for sure. You wrote in your article that flavor doesn't have to be pleasant to be attractive, but bitter seems to be a three or four steps beyond pleasant. It's definitely in the unpleasant area. So is bitter unique? I do think it's it's apart from some of the other unpleasant flavors. I mean, two other flavors that I mentioned um, are sour, which is, some people are very averse to sour things. 
I think. But as I as I mentioned in my article, I've I've and I've actually seen this in 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 real life when if if you give a baby who's never had um, a citrus fruit before a lemon or a lime, if you give them a wedge of lemon, um, I saw a, a video recently of a friend's baby sucking on the lemon, then sort of realizing what was happening to him, crying and spitting the lemon out, and then going back for it a minute later. Um, mm. So there's clearly something going on with, with sour foods where those are unpleasant, but there's also something kind of addictive about them. And then, of course, there's spicy food, and spiciness isn't actually one of the, the five tastes, but certainly a, a sensation that we encounter all the time when we're eating. And I've, I've read that the human reaction to eating something spicy is actually akin to the experience of going on a roller coaster or watching a scary movie and that it's scary, but it's thrilling. But bitterness, I think, is different because, in fact, when something is bitter, it's a sign to the brain that it might be poisonous. Biologically, we're supposed to think, oh, maybe I shouldn't eat this. This this might actually kill me. (laughs) And so it seems like we have to push farther to get ourselves to enjoy bitter foods, maybe just because of that that built-in biological reaction. It's so interesting how human culture has over time figured out what we can eat and what we can't. Right. Hannah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was writer Hannah Goldfield, now a food critic for The New Yorker. Mill Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moulton and I will take some of your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Chris, and I think it's time to get to the phones. Open up the lines. Let's go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is Jim Harding calling from Lee, Massachusetts. How can we help you? Well, my question is that I make a dish for my boys that we like to call mac and cheese with ham and peas. Oh, nice uh, idea. Sounds like a Dr. Zeus recipe. Yes, it does. Well, it, 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 it kind of started that way. But now my oldest son is off in Switzerland for school, and he wanted to make the same thing, but I can't find Monterey Jack and can't find cheddar, and I don't know what to tell him in terms of what other cheeses to try. Oh, but there he is in Switzerland, world of of cheese and melting cheese, the kind of cheese you put in fondue or raclette cheese. Raclette's great. But they also have Emmental and, and Gruyere, like you'd use in cheese fondue. I mean, any good melting cheese. It just has to be a high-moisture, fresh cheese. It can't be an aged cheese. Yes. That's the only thing. So, yeah. no. So, none of the, the Gruyere's and sort of Swiss-type cheeses has ever passed mustard for them before. Because it has too much flavor? It's too strong? Yeah. Yeah. Well, then don't use raclette, because that's very strong. They're very anti-Milk Street. They're not about bold flavors. <laughs> <laughs> neutral. They want neutral. Well, it's a neutral country, so they okay, want neutral Okay, so flavor. let's think yeah. of what is a blend. How about Comte? Yeah. That's pretty good. That's yeah. fairly neutral. You know what Comte? I would do? How old is your son? He is 21. Okay, so he could go to a local cheese shop and ask, you know, to taste a couple of different cheeses that are not semi-soft but not hard-aged and pick one that he likes the flavor of. That's what a I Fontina, would do. Fontina, maybe. Fontina. Yeah, Fontina might be Sort good. of nutty, buttery. Yeah. 
Will they be able to tell them whether it melts well? Or it, it, yeah. As long as it's, you can just tell it's high moisture, it's not hard. So we're talking about yeah. not like a hard right. Parmesan right. or, right. you know, not a right. hard-aged cheese. Yeah. yeah the, the, okay. Like a mild cheddar, like a fresh cheddar, the same texture. Same texture. Yeah, it's just texture. Then that'll melt. Okay. The hard cheeses don't melt very well. But, I, you know, that's sort of the fun part about being in a new country is trying out the local ingredients and figuring out for yourself. But, Your son should go check out the local cheese shops and taste a lot of cheese. And I wouldn't be surprised, by the way, is if he comes back eventually, even though right now he says he doesn't like these things, eating differently because he'll just have to. And then he'll well, start liking so. it. Yes. <laughs> that would be ideal. Yeah. Mac and cheese with ham and peas. Yes. Do you like it on a peas. boat? Do you like it with a goat? <laughs> on a train in the rain? I think, I think there's a little children's book. Uh, we well, know. try those and just make sure they're fresh and they're, they're not aged. There, it should there's be there's plenty of mild cheeses yeah. in Switzerland. I mean, well, I think you need to go over and visit him and have Raclette at a restaurant. It's Raclette's so good. fabulous. Yes. Well, that sounds like a good plan. Okay. So. Okay, Jim. Thanks for calling. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you want to know why your cheesecake cracks or why your cream sauce separates, give us a ring anytime. 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Hi, this is Kareen Morasco uh, from Alexandria, Virginia. Hi, Kareen. How can we help you today? Well, I'm terrible at judging when my pan is sufficiently hot so that food doesn't stick to it. I was making a sumac chicken, and the recipe said to heat a tablespoon of oil until just smoking. I thought my pan was hot, but when I put the chicken into the pot, it still stuck. What kind of skillet or pot were you using? It was a Dutch oven. Cast iron enamel, cast iron Dutch oven? No, it's a Cathalon. Is it very heavy or is it sort of light? No, it's light. So it's, it's the okay. anodized aluminum stuff? Yeah. Oh, possibly. Yeah, yeah dark, yeah. so dark gray? No, no that's yeah. not. Go out and get a actual cast iron Dutch oven, six quart, okay. or an enamel cast iron. Once it gets up to temperature, mm-hmm. it will retain the heat better because there's just more weight there. And so when you put the chicken or whatever into the pan, I mean, your pan probably was hot, mm-hmm. but once you put the chicken in it, the temperature went way down because the pan couldn't retain heat. Oh. Because the chicken was at 40 degrees or 50 degrees, so it sucked up all that energy from the pans. It's probably not an issue of whether the pan was hot. It's a question of whether the pan can stay hot once mm-hmm. you put the food in it. The other thing I do, you're right, you put the oil in first, you see a wisp of smoke. The oil should also start to shimmer like a little... It looks like little waves. Little waves right. like on a pond. The right. other thing I do is I put my hand two inches or so above the surface. Oh. And I, it takes a little practice, but when it really starts to feel hot, you get a sense of when it's ready. But the wisping of smoke should help. But I would get a better Dutch oven. Yeah, a couple other thoughts. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll stand back (laughs) and throw a tiny bit of water in the pan. And if it pops right back at you, you know it's hot. The other thing is maybe I'll just put a corner of the chicken in the pan. that's a good idea. And you should hear, tsst. But the other thing is what people tend to do is they try to turn the meat before it's achieved a sear. And when it achieves a sear, then it will release much better. So you might have needed to wait a little longer. Okay, okay. But if I'm trying to do it in a skillet, for example, I have a stainless skillet. Stainless steel no. is an F-minus no. conductor of heat. Right, it's terrible. 
if you have inexpensive cookware that is not multi-ply, because right. in the center there should be aluminum, for example, or copper, copper yeah. what you're going to find is that there'll be hot spots. So I think a 12-inch skillet, you should spend mm-hmm. the money in a Dutch oven. Those are the two things. Buy quality on those, and your cooking will be much better and much easier. One of the problems I have when you're browning a whole bunch of stuff before you go on to deglaze the pan and make a stew or do whatever else you're going to do is that you build up such a crust in the bottom you can't sear anything anymore. Right. So I tend to deglaze between batches and then wipe out the pan and start over with fresh oil. You have to, especially if it starts to burn. Yeah, because then you're going to have a burnt sauce. Right. Yeah, so I just wanted to address that because I think it's another issue. No, I've been doing that. I've been taking the pan off the burner and deglazing it with a little bit of white That's good. wine. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, you're way ahead of us. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very yeah. much. Okay. Take care. Thanks for calling. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Bonnie Morales. She's chef and author of Kochka, A Return to Russian Cooking. Coming up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread, it's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. 
I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Bonnie Morales is the author of Kachka, A Return to Russian Cooking, and also chef-owner of the Portland, Oregon restaurant of the same name. As a first-generation American daughter of Belarus immigrants, she thinks that it's time that America learns something more about real Russian cooking, not just borscht and blini. Uh, we're going to talk about your restaurant, Kachka, in a minute. But I thought we'd start with the story you've told about your grandmother and how she escaped through the forest. Um, I'll let you tell the story because you know it better than I do. Yeah, um, that's a it's a heavy place to start, but um, I guess it's, it's important. Um, my grandmother was in a, a ghetto with um, some of her family, her, her parents and some of her siblings. And um, it was October and getting cold. Um, there was a, a hole being dug. It was pretty clear that, you know, the, the end was near. She was trying to get her parents, her now elderly parents, to escape with her. Um, you know, and they, they said, no, no, go on without us. If we all leave, they're going to notice. So she left in the night um, the following morning. The whole ghetto was executed, and so she escaped through the forest, traveling, uh, you know, as quietly as she could. I mean, she had a, an infant with her, and um, she had to go in and get provisions here and there in different villages. And along the way, she was stopped by somebody uh, called a starosta, which is like a, a town warden, who was on to her, said, you know, you're a Jew. Uh, her whole story was that she was a Ukrainian peasant traveling to Russia to see her in-laws. And uh, he said, if you're if you're Ukrainian, then how do you say Utka in Ukrainian? You know, she obviously has no idea, but hopes, you know, that there's some overlap between uh, Ukrainian and, and Belarusian. So she hopes that there's that that exists here. So she just goes for it and goes for the Belarusian word, which is Kachka. And um, he lets her go. So she happened to get that one right. And for me, that's an important story because it's one of it seems like dozens or even hundreds that that she had along the way to get to safety and, and live, live her beautiful life. Amazing story. Um, let's back up a second. We're talking about Russian cooking, and you make the point that what most people think of as Russian cooking is not 
actually Russian cooking, or is a, <laughs> a very small part of what might might uh, you might think of as is Russian cooking. So Russia is a huge place. Uh, it's fi- complicated. It's complicated. Yeah. yeah, that's as they say. It's complicated. Uh, there are fifteen republics, including Belarus. So. Uh, there's, there's no such thing as Russian cooking. It's like there's no such thing as Indian cooking or Moroccan cooking. It's, it depends where right, you are. Right, what's American? Or American yeah. cooking. Um, so let's start there. So uh, you mentioned, it was so interesting, you said uh, the Eastern Republics have the Silk Road legacy of saffron and cilantro. So could you just give us some idea of the range of, of cooking styles and ingredients across all these republics, just to give us some idea of what we're talking about? Sure. I mean, you have things like in Uzbekistan, um, plof is king, which is like a type of, uh, oh, it's a rice dish with lamb usually. And so like, for example, saffron gets used there, turmeric and all sorts of other more aromatic spices, everything from that to, um, let's say in the Baltics, so many beautiful oily small fish coming from the sea there. Um, lots of uh, preservation because it's a, a, a colder climate to uh, lots of stream fish all over Russia. Um, you know, I think it's funny, Russia's um, is massive piece of land, and but really it's all about these little rivers and streams and lakes everywhere. Um, and um, you go down to Ukraine and Moldova and you have these beautiful tomatoes and eggplants and all sorts of nightshade ingredients that get used. So, I mean, it, and I can go on and on, but there's just, there's so many different ingredients and styles and they really do end up all getting intermingled. For example, a mangal, which is a type of uh, grill that comes from the Caucasus, is so part of, a, let's say, a Belarusian's um, summer afternoon. Like you, you go to your dacha and you grill on your mangal, and nobody even thinks twice that that's not Belarusian. They, it's just so part of what they do. So, so what is a Mongol grill? Is it's a little bit like a Japanese style grill? Those box grills? Yeah, like those robotas. Yeah, it's yeah. it's similar, um, but a little bit. Yeah, it's a little bit more sim- simplified, a little larger. So, one of the questions I had, and you mentioned this in your book, but are flavored vodkas like the real deal? <laughs> is that is that something people really do in Russia? Is the flavor of vodka? They do. I guess it really depends on who you are and, and yeah, what you're into. And I'm not a historian, but I imagine the reason people started flavoring vodka or infusing it was twofold. One, to mask sort of off flavors of sure. making your own moonshine. It's called samagon in Russia. And the other is they started more as like medicines, as a lot of, you know, tonics and things like that came from the United States. So similar. But um, anyway, these days it is purely for flavor and not everybody does it, but it is not uncommon. And Kyanavucha, which is um, a horseradish vodka infusion, is incredibly common. Um, And the other one that I love is bison grass. Um, Zubrovka is delicious sort of, I mean, obviously grassy, but also sort of like marshmallow notes. Um, so Kachka is the name of your restaurant, which is based upon your grandmother's experience. Where is it? When did it open? And how did you how did you open the restaurant? Um, it opened in 2014, almost four years now. Um, it's in Portland, Oregon. And um, yeah, my, my husband and I met in restaurants and he got me t- to like the food that I grew up eating. Basically, he I you know, I didn't want anything to do with it when we were dating and uh, we would go over to my parents house for dinner. I'd give him the sort of rote warning that I gave anybody that ever went to my parents house for dinner, which is that you should probably come fed. You're not going to like anything here. It's going to be a little weird. And he was like, you know, he left that dinner 
saying that it was amazing and that he wanted more of it. And, you know, I, I, I pretty quickly figured out that it, he wasn't just trying to like be nice to my mother. And he kind of changed sort of the way I thought about it. Over the years, that turned more and more into a conversation of how we needed to share that with other people, because the cuisine doesn't get a lot of positive attention. And it seemed like if we weren't going to do something about it, we didn't know if anybody else was. Um, I feel like you need a really good reason to open a restaurant <laughs> besides just being a masochist. So we we felt like that was a compelling enough reason to, to do this thing. Um, and that's kind of how it came to be. So let's do the usual suspects, which actually are different than most people think. Let's start with the obvious borscht. I've had this made by Russians, and it's it's quite different than what I thought it was. It was more of a peasant soup, a hearty peasant soup. Is there actually a recipe for it, or is it just a broad term to cover thousands of different recipes? So I would say that borscht and it's sort of uh, she, which is the cabbage version of borscht, are both more of this archetype of, yes, it tends to have beets in it to be borscht, and it tends to have cabbage in it to be she, but then what else you put into it kind of becomes more of a peasant stone soup. And then every region has their own way of doing it, and it also kind of depends on what you have laying around um, your cellar. But I will say that with borscht, there's definitely also like a seasonality to it. When you make borscht in the summer, it's a very different soup than when you make borscht in the winter. And you definitely make it at both times of year. So borscht in the summer is a cold soup, usually with uh, sour cream smithana whisked into it. And it becomes this like really refreshing electrolyte filled liquid. And then in the sun, in the wintertime, there's meat in it, it gets braised, lots of uh, root vegetables, obviously beets, but also potatoes usually and caramelized onions. And um, I love it with uh, spicy mustard. So Russian mustard um, is very similar to Chinese mustard in that it uses brown mustard seed. And the, the stuff that we make, or you can buy at the grocery store, uh, a really great example um, is amazing whisked into a hot borscht. It's to me like, that's, it's a must. So let's talk about recipes that the average person like me would make from this book. A porcini barley soup caught my eye. Uh, are there three or four recipes that you know you think translate really well to the American home kitchen? Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's a short rib jarcoy, uh-huh. um, which for me is like the. What, what does that mean? Jarcoy. It's just basically like a, a almost like a catch-all for a braise. Okay. But uh, yeah, it's it's the. It's what my mom makes whenever there's like, you know, 20, 25 people coming over for a dinner party. It's basically potatoes and short ribs braised together all day. And I think that the thing that I I love about it is that potatoes tend to, you think, oh, I need to add those later um, because they will overcook. Um, In fact, like there was one time where I had one of my cooks make this at the restaurant for a special event. And they were just, they asked me like four or five times, like, are you sure you don't want to put these potatoes in later? Like, no, no, I promise it's going to be just fine. And, you know, you you braise them together all day and the potatoes take in all the meat flavor and um, huh. they they get this like deep, deep, ruddy brown and they like they're meltingly tender, but they're not obviously not falling apart or anything. And you eat it with like, I always have it with a lot of sour cream. I mean, I put I probably put sour cream on everything, but um, <laughs> um, and it's just like a really great, especially this time of year, like a delicious sort of stick to your ribs, really simple um dish for any day. I really love the perlofka salad as a great lunch dish. I mean, and, and what is that? Perlofka is barley and this is um this is a barley salad with a, a really really herbaceous 
dill and sorrel uh, vinaigrette. And if you don't have sorrel, you can easily substitute spinach with a little extra lemon juice and then um, a whole bunch of hazelnuts and roasted mushrooms. So uh, let's talk about the Russian pantry. So if, if, if one wanted to start cooking some Russian food, are there two or three or four items that you would stock in your home kitchen that I probably don't have in mine? Hmm. Yeah, you know, um, uh, Russian mustard is one that I love to have on hand. It's such a quick little jolt. It's got a lot more sort of that horseradishy nasal heat to mm-hmm. it. And then this doesn't even require a trip to a Russian market per se, but just increasing your usage of sour cream. For me, sour <laughs> cream is a mother sauce. I mean, it. I use it to thicken sauces, to braise in, to marinate in, besides just the usual sort of garnishing. And I think that if you're going to purchase one, look for something that um, doesn't have any weird additives added to it. And that a lot of times there's ones called like European style that will have a little bit more richness to them and a little bit more tang. Uh, Let's talk about technique where a Russian cook would view things differently than a typical American cook. Hmm. Wow. That's a big question. I mean, I think it's the biggest thing is <laughs> the, the biggest thing that Russians think about is probably portion size, actually. Um, there's this I when you go to a Russian's house for dinner, you should never like have the feeling that maybe possibly you might take the last of something. And I think that like, if, if I go to someone's house that's not Russian, you know, they like, oh, there are 12 people, we'll make 12 of this, or, you know, just right. one for everybody. And like a, a, a Russian cook would never think that way because it would be a huge slight and embarrassment that they actually ran out. Um, and so when I think about just like prep for a, a dinner party or something like that, the quantities it's not because the appetites are larger, but the quantities is are always based on, you know, we have to make sure there are leftovers. And um, part of that, as you said, was the sakuski is, is sort of the meze, the small plates. I, I remember a Russian dinner a couple of years ago locally, and there must have been t- 10, 12 things on the table that yeah. is sort of, quote unquote, starters. Is, is that part of it as well? Yeah, that's another like sort of philosophical thing is that the the main course is not – they might call it the main course still, but it's not really viewed like the main attraction. The main attraction is Zakuski, and you spend most of your time socializing there and drinking and um, eating. And um, so, yeah, you want to have do- a dozen more different varied things because people spend so much time milling around those dishes, you don't want them to get tired. And then the main course, the, the kind of the philosophy a lot of the time is, you know, by main course, everyone's drunk anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So drinking, you've mentioned a few times, you talk about toasting in a Russian dinner party and there are rules about toasting. It has to be from the heart, right? I mean, it's not just a typical American toast. So so what is a Russian toast? Um, yeah, I mean, the <laughs> uh, that that's a, a really deep question. I mean, my, my father will at times write poetry for, a, let's say it's like somebody's like big birthday, like a 50th hmm. birthday or something. You know, he'll, he'll write whole poems for toasts. Yeah. Anytime there's some sort of significance for people gathering, I know that like people will think about it like in root, let's say like, oh, you know, what do I want to, what do I really want to drink to? Um, and so it doesn't, and it doesn't have to be anything long or arduous. Sometimes the really short, sweet ones are are the best but there's always there's always a thought process behind it so that 
that, yeah, you're giving a little bit of purpose to what you're drinking for. I feel like it really brings people together. I mean, that sounds really cheesy, but it's true. And I, I love, I love that part of it. Do you remember your grandmother, by the way? My grandmother, that's that's from that story. Um, I never met her. She passed away in the Soviet Union when I was four years old here. But I always think about how, you know, I would I have been able to have the bravery to to just continue on. I feel like I would have just when I mean she buried her infant three month old infant son in the forest. Hmm. He died of starvation along the way. I mean, she buried him with her own arms. And like I just even that act, I feel like I would have just stopped there. Right. And that it's not like my family's not special. I mean, World War II, Belarus lost 25% of its population. You know, and so like I think about that. And all over the world, this these sorts of things happen. And I just can't even I can't even imagine. That was Bonnie Morales, chef and author of Kachka, A Return to Russian Cooking. You know, a few years ago, I dinner at the Russian Samovar in New York at 52nd Street. It was an evening of dumplings and lots of flavored vodkas, but the menu was, for the most part, foreign territory. And that got me thinking. You know, Americans are familiar with the cooking of Europe, but Russia is really a complete unknown. It's almost as if there were a culinary iron curtain. Now, maybe that's because Russia is not just one place, from the southern Ukraine to the climate of Kazakhstan. So when asked, what is Russian cooking, it's like asking, what is American cooking? Well, it really depends on whom you ask. Right now, I'm heading over to the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Milk Street's Catherine Smart about this week's recipe. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? There are actually parts of the world, many parts, uh, that I know nothing about from a culinary point of view. Macau would be probably top of the list. You know, I looked at a book called Fat Rice a few months ago. Abraham Conlon interviewed him for the radio show. Uh, and it turns out that this food is uh, it's pretty heavy. I mean, Portuguese influence, lots of other uh, Asian uh, influences, a lot of fried food, a lot of sort of heavy sweet sauces. But one of the dishes uh, we found in that book was a sweet potato cake. It was not only easy to make, but it had really interesting flavor. So, so what is this cake? This sweet potato cake is really flavorful. It's a little bit dense, um, but it's lightened with all these interesting flavors like lime and coconut. Traditionally, it was made with a yellow sweet potato, but we actually make it with an orange sweet potato. They're easier to find, uh, and it gives it really great color. And one thing that's pretty interesting about this cake is it comes together in a food processor. So you can put away your stand mixer for this one. Uh, There's a couple of easy steps to get to that really moist, almost custardy kind of cake that we have at the end. The first is we grind up unsweetened coconut along with our other dry ingredients, and that makes it kind of its own flour. And then the second part is we take lime zest and we blend that in with our sugar, and that really distributes that citrus bright, zesty flavor through the brown sugar. Uh, and then everything goes right into that food processor. So we stream in you know, our eggs and our wet ingredients, and then we add melted coconut oil instead of butter. So you have the lightness of the lime, the richness of the coconut, and the, and the sweet potato all coming together in this dish. So you mentioned coconut. Is that that really sweet, sticky stuff that uh, <laughs> I've bought before for coconut cake? No, this is not like your southern coconut cake coconut. You want to look for unsweetened ground coconut, because like I said, we're making really a flour out of it in the food processor. It'll be way too sweet if you use sweetened coconut. 
And what about pre-cooking the sweet potatoes? That's a really good point. So you can actually just microwave them for about five minutes, huh. covered, and they cook up really quick and they're ready to go in your cake. Are these are peeled and chunked? Yes, Chris. They are uh, peeled and cut into like one inch dice. So this is a one, just so I understand, this is a one layer cake, right? It, yes. It, it bakes in what, a 9 by 13 pan or something? It does. It bakes in a 9 by 13 pan. Uh, it's sort of like an afternoon snack cake. And then we finish it with a very simple uh, lime and powdered sugar glaze. This cake is unbelievable. I have to say, you know, around the world, one layer cakes is, are really what most people make. They don't make two or three layer cakes. So it's very simple to do. And it just has a great flavor profile. So you have coconut, lime, lime zest, and then obviously the sweet potatoes. It's really great. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. You can find our recipe for Mackinney sweet potato cake at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions to my co-host, Sarah Moulton, right after this break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now, it's my favorite part of the show. We take some of your calls uh, with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah Moulton, how are you? I'm good, and I'm ready to hear what people want to know. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Michael Nischk. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. And how can we help you? I love to make my own sülze, which in English usually is translated as head cheese, but my version does not contain meat from the pig's head, but from a pork shoulder. I cooked it with some seasonings, and then it's diced and mixed and added to a liquid that has a lot of gelatin in it. But my problem is, even when I'm increasing the amount of gelatin, the sülze does not become really firm, which would make it easier to slice. So any suggestion how I can make it firmer? I know it's possible because my German butcher stores here in New York have versions that can be sliced thinly, but I haven't found the proper recipe yet. I would think... Wait a minute, Chris, what is head cheese? 
Well, it's the pieces of meat from the head of the animal that usually, are cooked a long time. It, usually you take a yeah. whole pig's head, yeah. Uh, yeah. removing some of the parts, and cook it down until all the gelatin comes out of the bones and everything. And then, uh, Well, that's the answer to the question. Because if you do it that way, there's a tremendous amount of connective tissue and gelatin coming right. out of the cooking process, which will set the head cheese, the meat. The German butcher stores that are still around in New York, they have something. And the Sülze, even though it's translated in head cheese, is not really head cheese because they have, as I said, what I call Sülze, which is just finely diced meats and diced pickles and sometimes red pepper or something like that. And that is also firm. So the gelatin from the pig's head, at least to my knowledge, does not play a role in this. It's not head cheese, what I'm talking about, really. It's a, it's a wrong translation. That's why I'm saying sülze. It's chopped meat. St- stewed meat. Stewed it, pork shoulder. It, that's the recipe that I found, and, and they suggest uh, using commercial gelatin to get it firm. But it, it does gel, but it's not firm so that you can slice it. slice it. Right. When I did that Fanny Farmer dinner years ago, we cooked calves' feet which is how you made gelatin in the old days. Yes. Right. And we cooked those down, and it made an extremely firm gelatin, which we ah. then mixed with sugar and lemon juice. But that ah. was very strong, and I think that's... Too much. So put, a, put some calves feet. <laughs> but here's another question. <laughs> no, but, no, but put something that has a lot of connective tissue. Yeah, right. yeah. Right. But how about you ask your butchers? Ask those guys. The, the question I bet really you is, they throw in some bones. But the or question is, why doesn't powdered gelatin work? And the answer might be, does acid destabilize the gelatin? But Of course, I put some vinegar in it yeah, to that give could it, be some, it some taste. Isn't vinegar always part of the recipe? I just wonder, though, whether if you left the vinegar out yeah. and tried it and see if it's set up if properly. That changes it. Yeah, that's I, I wonder, something's destroying the, power the, of the, gelatin. the firmness yeah. of the gelatin, right. and maybe the acidity. Right. Anyway. Okay. I just want to throw out one last thing. When I worked at this restaurant called La Tulip in the city, um, she used to make head cheese with the whole head of the pig. Right. And what we served it with was a very vinegary well, sauce. Right. So that is a way around this. To, I would to, to do it that yes, way. Yes, yeah. have the vinegar be on the outside. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. It was vinegar and capers and pickles right. and herbs. One, and, yeah. 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 So I would go that route. Right. Okay. okay. Michael, thank you. Thank yes. you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Appreciate Michael. It. Very interesting. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Melissa from Sacramento, California. Hi, Melissa. How can we help you? Hey, I've got a question about cornbread. Um, I grew up, my mom and my grandma made the cornbread recipe on the Albers box, and I recently tried it. I was making some soups, and my cornbread is awful. It is nothing. (laughs) It's not moist. I know baking is really exact, so I followed the um, measurements to the tea. I made it a couple of times, and it's dry. It doesn't taste like anything. I was wondering if you could help me or suggest a different recipe altogether. The first question is, what's the grind like of Albers cornmeal? Is it a very fine grind? Is it a coarse grind? It is a fine grind. Okay. So what you need to do is start with the right cornmeal. You want a stone ground, preferably. Okay. A medium or a coarse meal would be good. Bob's Red Mill, among other people, make a really nice, and some mills, other people make a nice cornmeal. There's a good one out of Rhode Island that I love, Kenyon. Oh, I don't know that. Kenyon's wonderful. They also make white cornmeal for Johnny Cakes. Starting with the right cornmeal with the right grind will help. Second, I think I've made this a million times. I think about half the cornmeal I soaked in hot water briefly. That also, I think, gives you a better texture. But most importantly, I cook mine in a cast iron skillet. I have a 10 or 12-inch skillet. 
I heat it up ahead of time with oil or bacon fat in it, whatever you have, and then pour the batter into the very hot, searing hot pan and put that in the oven to bake. And you get a great crust on it, which adds lots of flavor. Use the right cornmeal, preheat the pan, use a skillet, preferably cast iron with some oil or fat, and then pour the batter into the hot skillet and pre-soak some of the cornmeal. Many recipes will, will show that. I mean, well, let's ask you, how are you baking this in a, like an 8x8 or a 9x13 baking pan? Or? Exactly. 8x8, eight eight, a glass 8x8 right. eight pan. Right. So that's fantastic. When you said you soak the cornmeal, how long do you soak it for? I think five minutes with hot water. Again, okay. you'd have to, I don't have the exact proportions. Other thing I find is use enough salt. I think okay. this is one recipe where you definitely don't want to undersalt it. It'll help the flavor a lot. But I was going to say that also what makes cornmeal moist is both fat and sugar, like right. most recipes. So Don't use much sugar. Well, no, not a lot of sugar. I wouldn't. Okay. But, no. but let me ask you a question. How often do you make this? No, not very often. Okay, because there's another issue with cornmeal, which is it can go rancid. Oh, uh, that's a good point. So oh, you okay. might want to, when you do get a bag of cornmeal, regardless of the brand, keep it in the fridge or even the freezer if you have a big enough freezer. Because that might be another issue. You said dry and bland. It could also become okay. a little uh, rancid. You should keep all of your, like, I keep oats for oatmeal, uh, pine nuts. If, if you don't go through them Any quickly. kind of flour or anything, if you have Nut room. or seed or grain. Yeah, yeah. They'll go bad pretty They quickly. will, unfortunately. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. I hope we were helpful. That's great. I've got a lot of ideas now. Thank you so much. Yeah, okay. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Melissa. Take care. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is how to prepare garlic ahead of time. You know, on a busy weeknight... If a recipe says peel, slice, press garlic, uh, it's just one of those steps you don't want to be bothered with. So here's how to do it ahead of time. Take a whole head of garlic, crush it, get the paper off the individual cloves, and then thinly slice. Place in a small saucepan, just cover it with extra virgin olive oil. You could also use a little bit of butter if you like. And then add a couple of sprigs of your favorite herb, like thyme, rosemary, or sage. Stir occasionally, cook over low heat until the garlic slices are very soft and tender and translucent. Then transfer to a small container, like a mason jar, and you can put it in the refrigerator for a very long time. Now, here's how to use it. Just add a dollop of the garlic oil to flavor pasta sauces, cooked vegetables, rice, or maybe even on a steak. And by the way, you can mix it in with the juices of any dish to create an instant sauce. So that's it. Preparing garlic ahead of time. Use the garlic oil in almost any recipe. Now it's time to chat with Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker, and our in-house philosopher king. Adam, how are you? I'm all right, Chris. I'm glad I've been promoted to philosopher king. <laughs> Who abandoned the throne? <laughs> I, I, it's been vacant <laughs> for quite a long time. But, but you're, now, you're now fully ensconced, and uh, you've been blessed by the sword. So um, what's on your mind? Well, waving my scepter around, I've been taken in the last while, as I'm sure many have been, due to the cold weather and dark times of all kinds with the basic question about what do we eat when we're depressed? I don't know about you, Christopher, but I've been trying to kind of keep an internal personal diary of the food that brightens my spirits. You know, when huh. you're sitting down at the coffee shop and you ask, what's the soup? What soup do you want to hear when you're gloomy and you want to be less so? For me, it's always Yankee bean soup, white bean soup. Yeah. And I got to thinking about what are the foods that we eat? 
to cure, at least alleviate depression. And I found out, actually, Chris, that that's a real subject that real scientists study. And when you go and do some research about it, this is the kind of list you'll find that is, if not a cure, then at least an analgesic for depression. Walnuts, beans, berries, green tea, leafy greens, and whole grain breads. These foods appear again and again on lists of foods you should eat to lift your spirits. Now, some of that, of course, is a chemical and biological. I was going to say, that's not emotional (laughs) sustenance. That's chemical, right? That's chemical stuff, right? It's really like eating, you know, capsules of vitamins or things that are supposed to cure the inflammation that causes depression and so on. And yet when we read that list, my head goes nodding up and down, thinking that it's not just what we feel after we digest those foods, but how we feel after we taste them, when we're actually in the act of eating them that lifts us. And yet when I looked at that list again, I realized that it wasn't those foods alone that I would put in my list of foods to eat when you're depressed. It would be those foods in combination with some other opposite food. So walnuts, for instance, go wonderfully with leafy greens. Is there any salad that's more cheering on a dark winter night than a uh, salad with walnuts. When we think about beans, we think about that wonderful Yankee bean soup, right? But the key to good Yankee bean soup is that it's made with a nice, bright, acidic tomato base, and usually it's all the better for having a little balsamic vinegar. We think about whole grain bread, but it's not whole grain bread that we like to eat when we're a little bit down. It's whole grain bread with, I'd propose, salty butter. In other words, what strikes me about the foods we eat when we're depressed is that we want them to be normal. We want them to be the kinds of tastes that we don't usually think of as being contradictory. If you think about it, the opposite of depression, after all, isn't elation. In fact, elation is usually the prelude to depression. No, the opposite (laughs) of depression is normalcy. What we beg for, what we wish for, is the equilibrium of normalcy, and we wish for foods that reflect that state. You know, I, I that makes perfect sense to me. And I think you're absolutely right that if you are depressed, you don't seek elation. You seek boring <laughs> normalcy, right? You, you want the regular charms and, and cycles of life to continue the way they used to be. I, I think I want I, – I made a two-hour cabbage soup last night with a mm. liberal topping of grated Parmesan. I, I, I want foods that fill my mouth with a comforting softness. You know, I think about rice pudding. Th- those are the foods that are easy. They're forgiving. You and I both agree that comfort food is a phrase that should be banished from the gastronome's <laughs> yes. uh, vocabulary. But if you think about it, we don't really want comfort food. No one would have their spirits lifted by eating oatmeal for breakfast, tomato bisque for lunch, and then uh, butterscotch pudding for dinner. Because what, after all, is the state of equilibrium that you were describing so well? It's not a state of absolute, uniform, monotonous blandness. It's a state of familiar kinds of contradictions, of familiar equilibrium, the complexity of normalcy. Because our normal condition, after all, in life and at the table, isn't one of one um, monotone note. No, just the opposite. It's one of familiar opposites. It's one where the salty butter meets the nutty bread, and we feel simultaneously that it's familiar even as we recognize that there's a contradiction buried deep within it. Well, if your life is in anarchy, then you want food that's in harmony, right? 
uh, Chris the king doffs his crown. <laughs> I'm the court jester here. I'm not the king. <laughs> I think that's a perfect <laughs> summation of it. What we want is normalcy, and normalcy is inherently complex. Yes. We want the complexity of normalcy. Well said. Adam Gopnik, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. Adam Gopnik talked about what he eats when he's a little down. For me, it's not what I'm eating. It's always what I'm cooking. The Grateful Dead playing Touch of Grey, chopping onions, a little sizzle in the pan, the heat of the oven, the step-by-step nature of cooking. All of that is a culinary exercise that brings me back into the center of the familiar. As Jerry once sang, sometimes the light is shining on me. You know, it always shines in the kitchen. That's it for this week. If you just tuned in and missed our show, you can listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, just head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch the first season of Milk Street Television, or order the Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week. Thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Producer, Tristan Cimini. Associate producer, Carly Helmetog. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugar. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange. <laughs>